Well, there has been uh, a lot of talk lately about Canada's food guide and uh, some of it enough to shake your head a little bit uh, and some of it makes uh, people wonder, rightly so, who is behind the consultation? Who is it that leads to the choices that are made for Canada's food guide? Well, let's bring in Sylvain Charlebois, Professor in Food Distribution and Policy and Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Halifax's Dalhousie University. Sylvain, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Good morning. Uh, you talk about this. Uh, you, I know you have talked about this uh, as well. Uh, what are your thoughts about the fact we've had some comments this past week from Conservative leader Andrew Scheer about milk, and that's led to a bit of a backlash. What are your thoughts about the politics behind the food guide? <laughs> there's always there's always been lots of politics, and uh, I think that's only going to continue. Uh, the one thing that has changed in recent years uh, in relation to the food guide is that uh, industry uh, was was not actively consulted and industry did not have uh, did not play an active role in in the process uh, which i think is 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 a good idea the the one thing though that uh, mr shear did point out is that uh, industry does support and finance and fund uh, good research across the country coming from different universities, um, and and that it doesn't get uh, it doesn't get much of a voice these days, and and we need to be careful because uh, academics like myself we have to obey to strict uh, ethical rules uh, in relation to conflict of interest and 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 methodologies. So uh, just to push uh, brush aside all of that research would be. Uh, wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be a good thing to do because uh, it, it only would only complete some of the work being recognized already by the process. And is that where people? I mean, as we know, the food guide came out was revised recently, not too too long ago, after a long time of not being touched. And the dairy farmers weren't all that pleased with it because water was the drink of choice. But is that where we kind of have to to make sure we know where we're coming from? Whereas uh, the consultation in leading up to that revision, they did hear from a lot of industry. Uh, if we're looking at research, but it's, say it's the dairy farmers of Canada that have funded research, do we not need to take that with a bit of a grain? of salt as well uh a little i mean the 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 problem i see in the current process or the process that led to the new food guide was that it was scientifically exclusive uh only uh, dietitian and nutritionists uh, and i think a couple of environmentalists were involved in the process and uh i mean these people are highly competent and and they do know their field of work but they have a very narrow view of, of food systems in general. And uh, I, I think a lot of people would have, would have appreciated uh, seeing a much more comprehensive uh, scientific process, uh, which would include economists, for example, looking at food security. If you're asking people to eat more produce uh, and uh, you are asking people to, um, to uh, well, consume less uh, dairy products or milk, uh, that's great, but we do have supply management in our in our country, uh, and supply management's uh, fundamental premise is to produce what we need. Now, all of a sudden, you have Health Canada on the one side saying we should consume less milk, and on the other, you have Ag Canada saying, well, we need to maintain supply management. So there's lots of inconsistencies in the system that actually, I think, allows the dairy industry to scratch their heads.
And it also leaves consumers wondering, too, is this food guide put out because it truly is the healthiest thing for me? Or is it because part of the consultation or a lot of the consultation was from industry that want to make sure their products are part of the food guide? I think what's being prescribed by the new food guide is uh, is a healthy diet, but it's not Canadian. <laughs> That's what science t- science is telling us to eat what's on that plate, and and so anybody who's saying that is actually uh, saying that is actually accurate. But at the same time, there's lots of produce we don't produce in Canada. There's in that picture. There's there's say almonds. We don't produce almonds in Canada. So there's there's lots of different things that perhaps we should be careful with when you look at. Uh, telling Canadians what to eat and what not to eat. And so you have to think about, of course, health and nutrition, but you also have to think about agriculture and what we're producing in Canada. And and, it, and if you think about the environment as well, uh, you know, encouraging people to eat things that are produced miles and miles away, uh, I'm not sure it's the wise thing to do. Do you think we could have a food guide, though? Would it be possible to have one which with food only produced in Canada? Uh, I I think it would be an interesting exercise personally. So the the plate that was presented back in January is uh, is frankly a uh, a idealistic view of what of what a healthy diet looks like beyond borders. Uh, it'd be interesting to see exactly how a food diet would look like if if food sovereignty is uh, is given some consideration. I mean, the, the, the Aboriginal peoples of Canada are getting uh, the, their own food guide and food sovereignty is a factor. Why not do it for the rest of Canada? I'm probably because people don't want to give up their avocados. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with avocados, of course, and, uh, we, we, and global trades are there for a reason. But I, I think uh, it'd be great to actually give people a choice or at least a sense of, of what their food choices mean to, to the planet and how we actually grow things and what it means to agriculture in Canada. And do you think it would make a difference then on how people make choices? Because one of the things, too, is the idea of trust. And this new food guide comes out and people are being asked, trust us. We've done the research. We know what are the healthy foods. We know what's good for you. This is it. But then if you look at the consultations and you wonder, well, maybe industry pushed this. Well, maybe there was lobbying here. Maybe this decision was made not based on science. There's there's a lack of trust or there could be. Well, I mean, I, I don't believe so. I actually do uh, think that the people that were involved in the process are, are uh, trustworthy. Uh, all of them were scientists, and, and of course they have biases. So, Mr. Shear, for Mr. Shear to say that the, that the process of bias, of course, uh, human beings were involved in the process. <laughs> Everyone has a bias. However, uh, there was a bias towards science. Uh, clearly, to me, I'm not a nutritionist personally, but I can tell that really they actually look at the literature. What Mr. Shear is mentioning, or did mention this week, that is, uh, that is of merit, I think, is we need to review the food guide on a regular basis, not every 12 years. It should be done at least every five years so we don't go into these political debates around the food guide or, uh, or we won't see any lobby groups trying to weaponize the food guide itself, uh, that's not desirable at all. So every, reviewing every five years would be ideal. 
Uh, and that's exactly what's happening in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world. And I would imagine, too, if we started reviewing it every five years, that would bring in what you were talking about, how things might change globally in that uh, if there was a drought or if there was some other uh, situation that made a particular type of food more difficult to get or more uh, harmful to the environment, that would change. Exactly. Well, look at the StatsCan StatCan's report this week on the uh, Consumer Price Index. Produce is up 17% year to year. Carrots are up 30% since January. Onions up 20%. Uh, if you're asking Canadians to fill that plate, uh, half of it has to be produce. That's great. But at the same time, can, it, can they afford the food guide? That's the question that I think should be posed. No, and, and that was one of the questions, wasn't it, when this new one came out saying, this looks great, but it's a very expensive plate. Yeah, and uh, so we did actually connect with Health Canada on this uh, issue back in January, and they couldn't produce a report uh, for us on the economics of the food guys. So we, so we, Dalhousie and Guelph produced a report back in March assessing the economics of the food guide. The answer is pretty simple. Families will save uh, if they choose to follow the new food guide versus the old one, the 2007 version. However, <laughs> however, that's a big however. In 2022, things can reverse. The new food guide may become more expensive because of produce prices and the price of vegetable proteins as well. All right. Sounds uh, not uh, not a huge surprise. Uh, things going up in price no, for sure. Exactly. Uh, Sylvain Charlebois, thank you so much for being with us. So we'll leave it there. Thanks again for your time. My pleasure. If you live in Vancouver, you likely heard about the citywide plan as it was being discussed at council this past week. And you might be interested in taking part in the consultations on that plan. But what exactly is in it? Well, Mike Klassen is a columnist with the Vancouver Courier, and he has written about this and joins us on the line now. Mike, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Great to have you back on the show. The uh, title on this, uh, Developing Vancouver's Citywide Plan, will be like public consultation on steroids. So what do you mean by that? Uh, It just means that this is going to be really almost the mother of all uh, chats about the future of our city that will be conducted by dozens of staff. And it's going to cost a lot of money and it's going to take a lot of time. And I'm not sure what we're going to really accomplish during all of that time and expense. Because, and as you've written in this piece now, we do, our elected officials make these decisions. We presumably vote for who we think is going to make the best decisions. And uh, so they're going to be taking all of this input from the city. And at the end of the day, they're still the ones that need to make the decisions as far as what direction the city takes. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of things at play here. First of all, there is, uh, as you say, we, we do really elect folks to kind of take uh, the city in the right direction. You don't see a lot of federal or even provincial politicians talking about the future of cities, their economies. Uh, there's some a lip service, of course, that gets paid to, you know, funding for housing and, and talks about, you know, building rapid transit. But generally, it's the local governments that get most mostly involved in uh, planning communities and, and taking the direction of, of uh, the neighbourhoods and as well, you know, deciding where they're going to put some additional housing, add a little density, uh, so more people can live here because um, uh, this is a desirable place and we have 
um, less housing than uh, than the demand that there is out there for it. So uh, there are probably a lot of people who would like the city to remain the way it is. And there are, of course, people who see that cities evolve over time. They, they're sort of living um, uh, entities that that uh, take shape and take form over time. And so sort of laying down a, a set of basic rules and, and ground rules for how you're going to uh, map out to the densification and changes in a neighborhood, transportation and otherwise, um, requires a plan. And we've had a, a citywide plan, um, a very good one, that was uh, produced by somebody by the name of Harlan Bartholomew, uh, back in 1929, and subsequent to that, we've had a number of other sort of neighborhood plans that have been developed by by communities. There is a whole process that went on for years called City Plan, and there's been a downtown vision as well that's been created uh, with a lot of uh, community engagement. So the fact that we have council asking for yet another plan um, suggests that there's either one of two potential motivations for that. One, that they would like to see the city change, or one, that they would not like to see it change very much at all and want to try and, uh, you know, put in barriers to any additional development and growth. And I think that that latter reason is why we see some members of council really pushing hard for this, uh, this citywide plan. And it's, so you mentioned a lot of things there, and one of one of the things that does come up is what falls under the jurisdiction of a municipal council, and it's things like density in neighborhoods, it's garbage pickup, it's maintenance of parks, it's things that actually do have an impact on people's day to day lives. Uh, when I look at some of the visions in this citywide plan, uh, I don't know what it means to improve public amenity provision and cultural vitality. If I consult and say, yeah, I want my council to do that, what does that even mean? Well, and, and that's exactly right. I think what we now, I think part of the motivation for council sending uh, staff off to come up with a plan or a plan for a plan was a, a city planning process uh, was that we had a previous city government that was uh, pretty, uh, it was an activist council. It was Vision Vancouver under Gregor Robertson. And, and uh, you know, for better or worse, um, they left their impression on how the city was to be run. So we had a real, they were effectively thrown out of office. None of them were elected uh, to this council. And so now we have a new uh, crop of uh, civic officials and they wanted some change. And Unfortunately, now uh, cities ha- are really almost uh, shoulder the burden of having to respond to virtually every sort of cultural uh, entity that's out there in order to not offend anybody, I guess is what it sort of feels like. Um, and so they have a, a lot of obligations to, to, um, to, you know, as you say, they're trying to uh, uphold the sort of cultural fabric of the city. To be honest, I think that those things um, work pretty well, sometimes in their own. Of course, it's very important to pay attention to these things, and you don't want to uh, shunt aside any particular group or entity. But, you know, you walk around the streets of Vancouver and in several neighbourhoods, the diversity is just is overwhelming. It's fantastic. I mean, we're one of the great cities of the world when it comes to the cultural makeup. That happened not 
from a bunch of city planners saying that we're going to pick a bunch of people from this group to come together and we're all going to put them in one place. It just happened because that's the way cities work on their own. Exactly. And that's it in that we're not looking to council to to fix that or have influence on that. You're right. That kind of happens naturally. What we do need council to do is if their plan is to provide or build housing, maybe get rid of some of the red tape, make it easier for housing to be built, figure out what needs to be in certain neighborhoods and and maybe make some tough decisions that you're not going to be popular with everybody. And I, uh, that sort of really puts your finger on the on the situation. Cities have certain things that are within their their power and their jurisdiction, and one of them is to try and make themselves more efficient. And what you can tell from this process is that they're so afraid of offending anybody, including the members of uh, the mayor and council, is that they are being so overly cautious that they're making sure that they check every single box when in fact they have to look internally at the systems and how cities run and make the, make the city more efficient, have a, a blunt conversation that makes us look why we have the, the real kind of cultural gridlock of the downtown east side where that neighbourhood has gone on for so long as being a, a problematic area. We have the homelessness issue that faces us. These things require a sense of urgency and they require leadership. And what I think what we're doing right now is we're sort of kicking all those issues down the road instead of really talking about the things that are going to make the city run better and embrace the future. And it really doesn't help anybody to have this kind of flowery language with these with these generally general kind of projections or general plans and goals for people, especially, and you point this out in the piece, so when they're saying that everybody is the audience, everybody in the city of Vancouver gets a say. Um, well, and I think it's, it, it, it's nice to say that people are going to be included and know that they're included. But the fact is, is that most of us, um, and I am sort of being sort of blunt about this, most of us don't engage uh, in, in civic issues beyond perhaps making some snarky remark on Facebook now and again. We're very busy and we sort of want to just make sure that things are uh, well in hand and make sure that the as you say, the, the basic services are done, that the garbage collection is, is done, that, that our water and sewers work properly and our streets are clean and functioning. And, um, uh, and when it goes much beyond that, a lot of people aren't really too much into the, the, to the subtleties of the cultural makeup of one particular part of the city. Or, uh, you know, there's, there's so many things that just kind of happen that we accept as, as part of our surroundings. And, uh, you know, we might have an opinion about it, um, but uh, we don't necessarily think that we're we're going to get in, in terribly involved in trying to change it. Uh, so, what do you see, or what do you predict as far as going forward on this consultation and uh, having the whole city as the audience? Will it actually lead to uh, the current council? Uh, making their decisions based on that, because that was also one of the criticisms of the previous council is they had the majority, they knew so, they would often start working on things before the vote was even taken. Um, My prediction for this particular process, regrettably, is that it won't really result in in a great deal of of direction for council. I think, in fact, I'd be quite surprised if this council even gets to vote on the outcome of this of this process when you're involving dozens of staff 
uh, millions of dollars, and there surely there's going to be people who are going to want to say, hey, you didn't talk to me. Uh, and as a result, that sort of three-year plan might get thrown out the window and take even longer. So um, I would say that if there is any real decisions made as a result of this process, uh, I think we'll be waiting until the next council is elected. <laughs> All right. So we will leave it there. Mike, great to talk to you again. Thanks so much. You bet. You bet. Jill, have a great day. Okay, coming up, we're going to talk about a case. It took place in Vancouver. It was an extremely sad circumstance and something that can happen in seconds. And it could really happen to anybody. Talking about an incident of dooring, that's when somebody opens their vehicle door without checking. In this case, a cyclist happened to be right there. The cyclist slammed into the door and unfortunately passed away. And some have been raising questions and concerns about the fine that was handed down in this case saying it didn't seem appropriate. Well, Kyla Lee, who is a lawyer at Acumen Law, has written an opinion piece about this and she joins us on the line now to talk a bit more about it. Kyla Lee, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, I I get where people are a bit uh, flabbergasted, I suppose, saying someone died and then the punishment is this $81 fine and it doesn't seem to match. But you go through several points in the piece that you wrote saying, actually, uh, this is uh, the correct punishment or there is a reason uh, you can see the connection between the two. Yes. Um, and although this was an incredibly tragic incident with a, with a horrible consequence, the reality is that when our legal system sets up a, an offense and a corresponding punishment for that offense, um, the legislature looks at what the moral blameworthiness is of a person who commits that particular offense. So as far as opening a door uh, to your vehicle, it's something that everybody does every day. Nobody has any intention in opening their door of causing harm to another person. And so the level of, of you know, mental fault that they have when it comes to actually opening the door and causing somebody's death is on the, on the extreme lowest end of the spectrum, that it doesn't justify a significant penalty. And do people, do you find, tend to react, though, differently when we're talking about the loss of life? And and like you said, this was a horrible situation and people want to hold somebody responsible or want to see a punishment that seems more severe. Yes. And any time that somebody is killed in in any driving related uh, incident, the public tends to want to see a much more significant penalty. But there have been numerous cases um, that have gone through our courts involving driving incidents, even more dangerous um, aspects of driving, like people making turns incorrectly or people, you know, momentarily crossing over over a line. And and the courts have already set up an analysis of of how responsible people can be for that conduct. Um, And the legislature has responded by setting fines that uh, relate to the conduct in question. Um, And you have to keep in mind, too, that the type of people who could get a a fine or or be charged with doing aren't just people who are uh, drivers who have a higher level of responsibility on the road. It can be anybody that occupies the vehicle that opens the door. Um, So you're looking at a broad spectrum of people who who could end up charged with this this offense, and the penalty has to take that into consideration as well. Uh, You mentioned, too, this is something that anybody that drives, you do this every time you drive. You presumably open the door when you get out of the vehicle. Uh, What came to my mind, though, when I was reading this and looking at the case was on a much bigger scale, like you said, something that people do 
every one of us has probably, whether it was you were distracted or thinking of something else, either you've done the California roll, maybe you've even blasted through a stop sign. And it made me think of the Humboldt case, which obviously is a much bigger case, but it wasn't as though that driver went out that day with intent to kill a bunch of young people. He made a bad decision and it led to horrible consequences, Uh, but he is paying a, a big price because of that. Yes, and the difference between this case and the Humboldt case was uh, a, a couple of things. First of all, the driver there was charged with the criminal offense of dangerous driving, which requires more than just momentary negligence. Um, it requires a marked departure from the standard of a reasonable person. And when they looked at the, the crash data that had been obtained in that case, the speed with which he proceeded through the stop sign, the fact that he was distracted, the fact that he was a professional driver driving in his professional capacity, all of those things went into the analysis. But this isn't a situation of a, you know, a professional driver going through a stop sign, which I think everybody can say, objectively speaking, is is more dangerous than opening, opening your car door. But it's interesting that you bring up Humboldt, because the reaction from the public, even though the level of moral blameworthiness was higher there, was a lot of sympathy for the driver, you know, how awful it must be for him to have uh, been responsible for the deaths of all of those people and how maybe it wasn't necessary to send him to jail. And yet we see the opposite reaction sort of generally, the loudest voices here being send them to jail, change the law, make the penalties higher. It is interesting. It made me think of the other case, too, of the case of the doctor who was killed on Granville Street when the other car accelerated and the doctor was turning left and he smashed into his car going something like 50 over the speed limit. And that family that has been fighting and finally at the Court of Appeal said, actually, yeah, this this guy is is responsible. He shouldn't. He did did leave the phrase that you just used, the beyond outside of what's reasonable, a reasonable when it comes to driving. Uh, but there are different reactions. You're right. When Depending on, on the, the facts of the case, when in all of these cases, no, it's not as though somebody went out with the intent to kill someone. Exactly. And, you know, the real, if people are upset at what the fine was that was issued in this case, um, you know, it's, it, they shouldn't be calling for the jailing of this driver. Um, they should be lobbying for changes in the law, maybe different classifications of responsibility in the Motor Vehicle Act. If a driver opens a door when unsafe, a higher penalty than if a passenger does it. Um, if somebody who holds a license opens a door when unsafe, a higher penalty than somebody who does not. So that you can recognize recognize the varying degrees of responsibility and have more accountability based on that level of responsibility. Um, while I have you on on the line as well, I wanted to, to touch base with you on a much lighter note, because I saw you comment on this on Twitter. There was uh, this video that's been making the rounds of a driver driving down the steps of the wall center and questions about whether or not uh, she would get a ticket. Uh, your comment was pretty tough to ticket when you're not on a roadway. So is that driver not facing, do you think, would not face any kind of penalty because uh, she was on the steps, not on a roadway? It's really going to depend on how she ended up on those steps. And unfortunately, we can't determine that from looking at the video. If she was driving on the sidewalk and ended up on those steps, that's pretty much the only circumstance in which she could be ticketed under the Motor Vehicle Act. If she was driving dangerously leading up to that, left the roadway and ended up on the steps, 
she could face uh, criminal charges for dangerous driving. But if it was if it was just a situation of trying to navigate a confusing parking lot at the hotel, making a wrong turn and ending up on steps, it's probably just going to be one where we all laugh and nothing happens. And I guess also, I mean, it would be a much different story, much like in this case, people, when somebody is hurt or killed, people want to see somebody being accountable. Uh, we can laugh at this video that's making the rounds because nobody was hurt. It would be a much different story had she hurt someone. Absolutely. And I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that ending up in that position could have killed, you know, several people, depending on who was sitting on those steps or standing on those steps at that time. Um, so, you know, while we laugh at, uh, you know, funny or unusual driving situations, I think it really brings home this this fact that some things that are funny or some things that people do every day are mistakes that we make with our vehicles where, you know, we're driving uh, one ton weapons um, and they can be uh, they can be deadly. And you mentioned, too, that in the case of the 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 um, the cyclist, the Doring case, that if people are really uh, upset about this, upset with the $81 fine, or maybe people are upset of, uh, about seeing that video and, and, and hearing that she likely won't face any consequences, that they should be lobbying or should be talking more about changing the law. Uh, do you think in what you've seen and what you've seen in the courts, is there a need to change certain laws? I don't think so. I I think the issue with Doring, for example, can be dealt with by changing driver training. A lot of people have have brought up something called the Dutch method, which is uh, a training that's done um, where people are taught to open the door with their right hand as opposed to their left hand, which causes them to uh, look behind them as they're opening the door and it forces your body into that position. And that's just a really smart thing that we can start doing to teach drivers. We can teach our children now uh, to do that. Um, So that we avoid these collisions in the future. And it doesn't require a higher penalty. It just requires retraining our bodies. All right. Uh, It is an interesting piece. Thank you so much uh, for both writing it and for coming on the show to talk about it. Uh, Kyla, we'll chat with you again soon, I'm sure. Great. Thank you so much. Let's shift gears. I mentioned we're going to talk about some new requirements that BC is bringing in when it comes to protecting foreign workers. And joining me on the line to talk more about this is BC Labour Minister Harry Baines. Minister, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, good morning, Jill. Thank you for having me. What exactly is the government bringing in that will help and protect foreign workers? Yes, uh, Jill, I think you may recall the fall of last session uh, in Victoria, we passed legislation called um, Temporary Foreign Worker Protection Act. And uh, it had two components. One was to uh, regulate um, recruiters who recruit workers to work in B.C., and the second piece was to uh, have the uh, employer who wished to employ uh, temporary foreign workers um, uh, to be registering with, uh, with the BC. So uh, right from then on, we start to put the regulations together. And what we announced yesterday was that the regulations are uh, complete and uh, they will be uh, in effect. And uh, which means that we're giving, uh, as, a, as a part of the first phase, recruiters up until October 1st to uh, get licensed with the, with the BC, and uh, then uh, then they then they have to have that license in order to uh, recruit for for British Columbia, and uh, so they will have till uh, October first. And so regulations are in place, and that's what we announced yesterday. And how will that make a difference? So if recruiters get the license, and they're all licensed by October first. How does that ensure that they're going to be treating foreign workers correctly? So, right, so there are certain requirements what the recruiters must do. One, that they must uh, deposit $20,000 security fee 
so that uh, if they charge illegal fee uh, uh, to uh, to the uh, uh, to the workers who they are recruiting, then uh, the province can uh, uh, investigate and levy uh, those uh, fines and and collect fine and also collect illegal illegally collected fees from uh, from from the recruiter on behalf of the worker and pass it on to the worker. Uh, they have certain requirements that they uh, must uh, um, uh, recruit these workers within the law, which means that uh, they promise uh, what will what the workers will be paid and, and what their working condition will be. That they cannot uh, be in a situation where they promise one thing and then the workers find something totally different when they go to work, or they're paid totally different. And the abuse has been that they were uh, paid less than what they were promised, uh, less than the law requires uh, as a minimum wage. And uh, also their passport sometimes was taken away, threats of deportation. And these people had no place to go to complain. And many times they didn't even know where to go. <clears throat> so these regulations now will require um, you know, the whole these recruiters accountable to make sure that they operate within the law and uh, they treat those uh, uh, workers uh, within the law of uh, British Columbia. And will workers still have to have a place? Because like you said, there were many cases where workers who may have been exploited didn't know where to go to even try and get help. Uh, How will this make it? So I can see how it makes the recruiters more accountable and easier to punish them. But will the workers still know where to go and, and how to launch their complaints? Yes, I think uh, the the other piece is that uh, uh, we are reforming uh, Employment Standard Branch uh, by adding uh, more staff. They have actually started um, what they call uh, the Temporary Foreign Worker Protection Unit, who actually can, can uh, once we know who the recruiters are, once they register with us uh, by October 1st, uh, then the staff could go and audit once they hear some complaints and uh, make sure that the workers are treated exactly according to the law. And uh, then uh, if they feel that uh, uh, investigation is warranted, uh, then an investigation will take place. And the, uh, then they could actually levy fines. <clears throat> and uh, in, in serious cases, Jill, uh, just to show how serious we are, in serious cases, could, uh, they could actually uh, refer the case to the Crown and the courts can fine um, uh, up to $50,000 and, and, and jail time as well. So I think, I think this is something that we have to do because we've seen too much abuse and exploitation. We need these workers. Employers need these workers. And our economy is right now uh, dependent to uh, you know, large cases on the temporary foreign worker. We can't find our own workers in D.C. economy is so hot. And for a fact, 101,000 jobs in, in 2019 it's empty because uh, the employer cannot find workers. So I think this will also attract new workers to come and work uh, where, the, where their uh, skills are needed. And I think it'll, it's good for economy. At the same time, we're protecting these workers of very basic rights. And, and just before you go, you mentioned that they could be audited and then they could be fined or it could be referred to Crown. Uh, will it be based on complaints, though? Because hasn't that also been one of the issues that in a lot of cases, workers are afraid uh, that if they do complain, they'll be fired or they're afraid to bring their concerns forward? Yes, I think a previous government uh, uh, turned the system into complaint-based only, and they were only complaint complaints that comes to them. But now we have extra resources. We were given a $14 million in 2019 budget, and we are adding more resources, and that will give them the opportunity to be proactively go speak to these workers and speak to the recruiters, and in fall when we bring regulations to have all the employers 
uh, register with BC. They could go to employer's site and investigate and audit them and uh, ensure that the employers are complying with the law as well. And uh, and uh, if not, uh, then I think the actions can be taken and employers will then be put on a list where federal government will know if they're not complying with the law and uh, their future application can be uh, denied. And at the same time, you know, the action could be taken just like the recruiters, uh, fines and jail times. So recruiters should be expecting random audits. They won't be complaint-based audits? Yes, I think now we're turning the whole employment standard branch into a proactive uh, uh, model uh, so that, uh, uh, you know, if they feel, if they see one complaint and uh, complain and say there are others uh, at that operation uh, facing the similar uh, issues, they could go in there and audit the entire operation to ensure that everyone is treated according to the law. And uh, so I think that we have some more resources. We can do proactive work. Right. But the way you said that, so it is still complaint-based. There would still have to be a complaint made. No, they can actually go on their own. Uh, you know, that's the that's what the changes are. Uh, it doesn't have to be complained. Uh, all they need, sometimes, sometimes, could, sometimes people make, an, you know, uh, unanimous complaint and without telling their names, they could go in there if they feel on their own that there may be some abuse going on in certain... I mean, you, you take a look. I've heard story, Jill, that, uh, you know, there is a one employer uh, who employs only uh, less than 10 uh, workers, but they have LMIA issued uh, like a 20, for 20 workers. So I mean, those are the situations they could take a look and go and, and investigate what is going on and make sure that the employer and these recruiters are, are uh, you know, operating within the law. All right. So we will leave it there. Uh, Minister Baines, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jill, for having me.